0: In college, I had this really good friend uh, who I met at church, and uh, we worked together. We played in a band together for a while. We had tons of mutual friends. We had the same taste in music, movies, comedy. We hung out all the time. Um, As I said, I was in college. He was a few years older than I was. He was married. And in those years where we were good friends, his wife had an affair and left him kind of abruptly and I walked with him through that really painful, profoundly painful experience. Um, a few years later, uh, my wife Ashley and I moved from Dallas where we lived up to Boston for me to start grad school. And we moved there kind of right before social media took off. So when we moved you know, halfway across the country, staying in touch with old friends, which I intended to do, was still a matter of like email and the occasional long distance phone call. Um, and I really did. I wanted to prioritize staying in touch with friends. And so, you know, my closest friends, I would try to call them maybe a couple of times a month. If we were back in town, like at the holidays in, in Dallas, I would make it a priority to go grab coffee or something. I wanted to keep these friendships going. But this friend I mentioned earlier, um, he just wouldn't participate in that. And he stopped taking my phone calls. And he wouldn't answer my emails. And he would not make time for me When I was in town, and when I finally did get him on the phone, after months of like wondering what's going on, the first thing he said was, why are you calling me? And uh, it was just such a shocking thing to hear from him. I sort of blurted out awkwardly something along the lines of, well, um, we're friends, (laughs) and I just want to see how you're doing. And uh, we had this very awkward conversation. It ended abruptly. And for all intents and purposes, that was the end of our friendship. Friendship. Um, Facebook really kind of went, you know, full scale over the next couple of years. He wouldn't even be Facebook friends with me. Um, And you might be wondering or thinking, like, Ryan, something must have happened. Like, why would this occur? Why would he respond to you this way? And I can tell you, honestly, there was nothing. There was no falling out. Nothing dramatic happened. There was no argument. There was nothing. He just sort of unilaterally decided we're not friends anymore. And so in 2020 language... He ghosted me. And, um, you know, it's still, it's one of those things, enough time has gone by that it doesn't, like, hurt in a visceral way anymore. But it still stings if I think about it, you know, because it just, I didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. Um, And this practice of ghosting people has become very prevalent, especially as our relationships increasingly play out in a digital landscape. Um, Because it's as easy as unfollowing. Blocking, unfriending, muting. And I was doing a little research on this phenomenon of ghosting, and I read this article in Psychology Today. It explains why it's so hard. Uh, And it said this. It says, for many people, ghosting can result in feelings of being disrespected, used, and disposable. Ghosting gives you no cue for how to react. It creates the ultimate scenario of ambiguity. Should you be worried? What if they're hurt and lying in a hospital bed somewhere? Should you be upset? Maybe they're just a little busy and will be calling you back at any moment. You don't know how to react because you don't really know what has happened. It doesn't just cause you to question the validity of the relationship you had. It causes you to question yourself. Why didn't I see this coming? How could I have been such a poor judge of character? What did I do to cause this? How do I protect myself from this ever happening again? Some of you may have experienced things like this. Ghosting is sort of a a passive way of telling someone they don't matter. Uh, There's an active version of that, too, kind of the other side of the coin. The cancel culture, you may have heard of this right now, usually has to do with kind of public figures. When they say or do something offensive or out of alignment with uh, other people's worldviews, and there's this reaction of, well, they should just go away. They should have their platform taken away. They should maybe lose their job. And sometimes they do deserve that based on what they said and the role that they have. Um, but sometimes they don't. But the, the, the more concerning thing is that that impulse to, to sort of cancel people has trickled down into kind of non-celebrity culture into our lives, uh, into our families, into our communities. So if we, just, if we disagree with someone, we just cancel them. They're just out. They don't deserve to be in our life anymore. I'm just going to cut them out. The deeper result of this, of both the kind of active canceling and passive ghosting, is that we release ourselves from any obligation to care about somebody. That's what this achieves. And this unhealthy social practice, which has become normalized, sadly has made its way into the hearts and minds of Christians. And it has shaped the way the church publicly responds to people who think differently than we do and believe differently than we do. Let this sink in for a moment. Love your enemies. Treat other people how you want to be treated. I mean, these are some of Jesus' most famous words, revolutionary words, but where do these words fit into a ghosting and canceling culture? How are we Christians supposed to interact with others in a society that is increasingly secular and at times antagonistic? To what we believe. What about the call to be ambassadors for Christ? What about that? Ambassadors to a hurting world. How can we do that if we are posed, poised to, to ghost and cancel people who don't believe what we do or who offend us? In case you're unaware, we are about to step into what promises to be a very nasty and divisive election in this country. Will we love our enemies or cancel them? Will we treat them how we would want to be treated or ghost them? I think perhaps the most dangerous result of Christians embracing kind of a ghosting or canceling attitude toward people who don't believe what we believe is we actually preach a false gospel to ourselves in the process because we're treating people as if they're a lost cause or irredeemable, and that is not how God views them. We're supposed to see others as Jesus sees them. What if Jesus saw us as irredeemable? Praise God that he does not. So we're going to look at another parable today, a parable of the kingdom. We've been looking at these in this series, the parables Jesus taught about the kingdom, the nature of his kingdom, how it grows, what the kingdom of God is. And the parable we're going to look at today, I hope, will recalibrate our feeling about what it looks like to interact with people who don't believe what we believe, who don't act like we act, and that we would see them as Jesus does. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Gospel of Matthew uh, is the first book in the New Testament. Um, Those Bibles on the table, feel free to pick one of those up if you don't have a Bible, and you can mark that up. You can take it with you if you want, if you don't have a Bible, though we will have the scripture on the screens as well as we go through. So Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, Jesus is speaking about his kingdom, how his reign is going to grow in our world now, and, and how it will kind of go on into eternal life after that. So let's start reading verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping... His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So Jesus' ministry in the first century, primarily in Galilee, this was a rural environment, agricultural economy, So this kind of story for us seems a little bit remote, but to his listeners in the first century, this is a very normal scene. This is the context in which they lived. And you have this man who's planting this wheat, and someone comes in the middle of the night and intentionally plants weeds there to sabotage his field. This actually happened in the ancient world. The Romans had laws against this because people would do this sometimes. And um, highlight, if you're taking notes, highlight the word weeds um, this man sowed weeds into this um, crop of wheat. Now, the word weeds in English strikes us as kind of generic, right? There's all kinds of weeds. But but this word in the original language of the New Testament in Greek w- referred to a specific plant. And that plant, um, the zizanion or Darnell plant, it's sometimes called false wheat. Because for a while, it looks exactly like wheat. They're like indistinguishable. And But then at a certain stage in its growth, it begins to have poisonous seeds and uh, actually a fungus that can attack other plants and harm them. And so knowing that, it's understandable that the workers would say to the man, highlight this, their response, do you want us to go and pull them up, the weeds? You know, there's a risk to leave them there. Let's get rid of them before they do damage to the real crop. And to that suggestion, the farmer, and I think this would have been surprising to Jesus' listeners To to that suggestion, the man says, no, we're just going to keep letting them grow. Highlight that. Let them both grow until the harvest. And he's saying, when it comes time to pull everything up, we'll pull up the wheat and the weeds together and we'll make a separation at that point. Now, when Jesus told parables, often he didn't explain them. He just sort of taught them and and, and it got people thinking and the, the lesson was sometimes obvious, sometimes a little less obvious. There's a couple parables, though, that he explained. He just laid out, here's exactly what I mean by this parable. This is one of those. So skip down to verse 36, and Jesus explains this. So let's look at his explanation. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now there's a lot to that explanation, but I want to zero in on a few key aspects of it. Um, He says the one planting the seed in the parable is the son of man. Highlight that if you're taking notes. Son of man was Jesus's favorite designation for himself. When he talked about himself, that's the label he consistently gave for himself, the Son of Man. And he didn't make that up. That, was, that points back to Daniel 7. If you want to go read it later and look it up, Daniel chapter 7. There are these prophetic visions of the end of history. And there's this Son of Man figure who's a divine figure, a Messiah figure, who will come at the end of time and usher in his eternal kingdom. And so it's this amazing image in Daniel 7, and Jesus, by calling himself Son of Man, is saying, I'm that person described in Daniel 7. Um, So Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the one who's sowing these good seeds, and and the field is the world. Highlight that. Not just the church, not just people who believe, the whole world, everyone in it. The wheat represent God's people, he has said. Those who've trusted Christ, those who've entered into the kingdom, those who've subjected themselves to Christ's reign. The weeds, by contrast, represent those people who've not been forgiven of their sins through a relationship with Christ. The world is made up of those two groups. Now, highlight uh, also uh, the harvest is the end of the age, if you're taking notes. The harvest is the end of the age. Um, In the parable... The farmer says, you know, let the weeds and the wheat grow up together, intermingled, until the harvest. Um, Jesus is telling us here the meaning of that. He's saying God is allowing Christians, his church, and non-Christians to be intermingled in the world until the very end. Jesus is not pulling weeds now. He's not doing like, you know, ongoing maintenance of the field. There will be a harvest one day. Jesus is saying. And the harvest, actually, when you look at all of Scripture, harvest is a, is a metaphor for the day, the, the end, the judgment, the, the end of history when God's kingdom is established. The harvest is an image you see over and over again. There will be a day when his kingdom arrives in its fullness at the end of history. There will be a reckoning, a harvest, when his justice against sin and evil will be handed out, when the hearts of people will be revealed, and he will separate The wheat from the weeds. He will distinguish between those who have trusted in him for salvation and been forgiven of their sins and those who have freely rejected him. He gives us free will. He does not compel us to be wheat. And so that distinction will be made. Um, And so the weeds are those they will be rejected, excluded from his presence forever. Now, the biblical language, which we saw there of the blazing furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth, that seems extreme Uh, Most biblical scholars would say not to take that literally in the sense of kind of the cartoonish, you know, images of hell that we tend to see. This is metaphorical language of what it would feel like to be cut off from God's presence. Hell, biblically speaking, is simply the absence of God's presence. He's not involved anymore. You, You know, the world now has God's presence and loving care. The sun shines on both. The weeds and the wheat. He gives good gifts to the whole world, whether or not people deserve it or even love him or even accept him. This is a, a an, an idea that theologians call common grace. God's grace is just manifest in the world, whether or not people believe in him. But at the end of history, the weeds, those who've rejected God, will be destined to a life they chose apart from God. That's the image here. And the wheat, God's people, will shine like the sun, he says. In the kingdom of the Father, experiencing splendor of eternal life, unimaginable joy. And then he finishes with this phrase he often used. Highlight this Whoever has ears, let them hear. It's Jesus' way of saying, Listen up. I hope your heart is open to hearing what I'm telling you. That's what he means. If you, if you have ears and you're listening, I hope you're hearing me. So let's talk about what this parable means. For our lives, for the life of the church, it's a very rich parable. You could preach a thousand different sermons on this, but I, you know I want to focus on a couple of key aspects of it. This parable really does speak to some of the deepest questions of faith. You know, Why isn't God's kingdom if it's here? Why isn't it more triumphant? Like, why isn't it more overtly successful? Why doesn't everyone go to church? Why doesn't everyone love Jesus? Why does evil seem to win so often? Why is there abuse and poverty and murder and all these things? Why do people who dishonor God seem to go unpunished? Why is Hollywood defining the cultural values instead of Scripture? Why do dishonest people in business and politics seem to get ahead? These are questions we wonder about, and this parable speaks to all of this. God's justice will come, but for now... He allows those who reject him to live alongside, woven in community with those who do accept him. And why would he do that? I think the answer is simple, really. I'm going to put it on the screen. God loves the weeds. God loves the weeds. He died for the weeds. And, by the way, we were all destined to be weeds without his rescuing intervention. And so we, we looked at these verses a couple of weeks ago. I want to put them back up here. Second Peter 3, 9 to 10. This just gives you God's heart about the end, the day of the Lord, when his justice arrives in its fullness. Look at what Peter said. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. In other words, he's not just like lazy about the end, the end of history. He's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, into a relationship with him. But the day of the Lord, the end, will come like a thief. It will come suddenly. So this shows us God's heart. He wants everyone to be in relationship with him. He doesn't want anybody to be separated from him. You know, God is both love and he is just. You have to hold both of those up to see God in a biblical lens. He is just and he is love. In his justice, he punishes sin. In his love, he forgives us and rescues us from the penalty of that sin if we call on him. And we see both his love and justice in this parable. His justice will be handed out at the end of time. His love leads him to allow the weeds to keep growing because some of them are going to be wheat in the end, which is what he wants. So how should we feel about all of this, those of us who are Christians? I think there's a number of things we should feel, a number of ways we should respond to this. First, we should not be surprised that evil flourishes like weeds or assume that God is absent or uncaring. He's not. His justice will come in his timing. Also, we Christians are not the harvesters. Jesus said that in the parable. God is not asking us to pull weeds, to cancel people who don't believe what we do, or shame or humiliate those who reject him. No, we are not called to cancel or ghost the weeds. We're not meant to thin the crop. I mean, so often we Christians as a community at large, we can find ourselves inexplicably rooting for the weeds to be uprooted. Because those heathens deserve it, right? Or, if if someone who would fall in the category of a weed starts expressing interest in God and opening their heart and mind to it, they're met with skepticism from Christians. I'll believe it when I see it. You know, have you seen their life? What about all those sins they used to be involved in? I don't think so. That can't be real. And if we embrace that attitude, how <laughs> it's no wonder that People who aren't Christians often feel unwelcome among Christians. God willing, some people who seem like weeds, many people who seem like weeds, will turn out to be wheat. That's God's heart. That's Jesus' heart. And it is meant to be ours as well. He wants no one to perish. And he allows his church the wheat to be planted right alongside the weeds, interwoven, their root structures interwoven together, living life right next to each other. And we are called to love them, not to hate the weeds or try to get rid of them, even if they hurt us. Love your enemies. We are called to view them as God does, made in his image, objects of his unconditional love, worthy of his life. Jesus said, if you have ears, I hope you hear me. I think there's a key message for those of us in the church from this parable and a key message for those who don't know Christ. For those of us in the church, I think the message is this. We have to trust in the timing and manner of his justice and love the weeds as he does. Trust in the timing and manner of his justice and love the weeds as he does. For those of you who may not know Christ, or maybe you're asking questions about whether God's real, this whole thing is still something you're exploring. I think Jesus also is saying to you, I hope you hear what I'm saying. His message for you is this. He wants you to be among the wheat, and he gave his life to make that possible. He's invited you with open arms into his kingdom. And he's allowing you to live right alongside his people and in, to enjoy many blessings. But one day his justice will come and he will make a separation and he wants you to be among the wheat. He gave his life. You are worth everything to him. But I do want to under, I want you to understand this. If you uh if you're not a Christian or maybe you've been out of church for a long time or you're skeptical about all of this, When you reject God, he doesn't ghost you. He doesn't write you off. He doesn't cancel you. He keeps on loving you the same. Even if Christians or the church more broadly has made you feel that way, first of all, I'm really sorry if we have. If the Christian community has made you feel like an outsider, unloved, irredeemable. If that has happened to you, let me say I'm sorry. But that is no bearing on how God actually views you. He loves you. He gave his life for you. He made you, and he is pursuing you. In a couple of weeks, we're starting a new series, teaching series, on the gospel of John, on the life of Jesus. Um, we're calling it Representing Jesus. We actually have uh, invite cards on your table. Um, This is a series um, that is not just for the wheat. This is meant to be for us to grow, of course, But, but this is for people who don't know Jesus or who may have questions about God or wonder about, you know, what this Christianity thing is about. This series, what we want to see happen over these you know, several weeks that we're going to be in this series, a couple months actually, we want to see Jesus with fresh eyes. And we also want to discover how we can represent him well in our community. And the Gospel of John was written by someone who, by all accounts, was Jesus' best friend. It's a very personal portrayal of Christ, what he was like, what he said, what he did. And so here's my encouragement to you. Make it a priority to attend this series and invite someone with you who doesn't know Christ or is jaded about the church or is sort of floundering in their life of faith. There are people in your world like that. There's people in my life like that. And invite them to come with you. Use this series as an opportunity to introduce them to Christ or reintroduce them to Christ. And walk through them with, uh, through this series with them. So I encourage you to take a couple of these cards, take them all off the table, and pray over them and think, who can I invite to come with me on February 9th and begin this introduction or reintroduction to Christ? And pray that God speaks to them. And if you in this room aren't sure about God, you're not sure about Jesus, this series, I really hope you'll make it a priority. And come with an open mind and open heart about what God might want to say to you about how he feels about you and that he would open your your mind and your heart to new things. Let me pray now that God would give us those ears to hear.